Hello everyone, it's September 18th, 2018. Well, we gotta talk about the big reveal, two of them actually, namely the name of the BFR Mystery Passenger and the BFS update. Spoiler alert, Thins are in. It's a very retro look, but we're looking forward to talking about it and liftoff. And we have cleared the tower. Welcome to episode 176 of the Orbital Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. I'm Ben. And I'm Dennis. How's it going? So, Ben, you're coming from us today from your <laughs> iPhone. Yeah. Um, yeah, so it's good that I have backup recording equipment so that I can record on my good microphone so nobody should be able to hear the difference. But yeah, I'm um, switching back and forth between Discord and our show notes and Google Drive on my iPhone. <laughs> and it's not great. Oh, yeah. Wow. Not ideal, but you're you'll be going shopping later on for a uh, laptop, which is a whole lot of fun. I'm kind of envious that you get to go computer shopping. That's like my that's like the one thing I like to shop for. Like that's pretty much. Yeah, it. I mean, it's computer shopping is fun. Um, I've n- literally never bought a Windows machine. Mm-hmm. I've owned Windows machines, but they've been like gifted to me, and it, it it just really sucks that I have to go buy something at a big box store. So for listeners, uh, last week. My MacBook, I accidentally destroyed the screen. So last week I recorded the show using my MacBook and an external monitor, and that wasn't too bad. Now my MacBook is in the shop, and we've had a couple of back and forths. So it should have been done by now, but um, they had to they had to take it back. So hopefully it will be done Monday or Tuesday, probably Tuesday. And David had a really good idea. He said, well, why don't you just take some of our podcast money and go buy a backup laptop in case this happens again? So, you know, mm-hmm. hopefully it shouldn't happen again, but it'll be nice to have a little backup laptop and, you know, I can use it to record other people. You know, if I need to, you know, ship a laptop to somebody mm-hmm. for some reason or whatever, we can do that. Because I think that you having just one laptop, I mean, that's kind of anachronistic for this day and age. Uh, <laughs> Not when your preferred brand of laptop costs multiple thousand dollars. Right. Well, that's true. But I have absolutely get that but you should still have some kind of like cheap backup i mean that's well, what i have yeah i mean you can you can get a cheap laptop for under 200 dollars if you really need to i mean it'll be a, a crappy laptop but yeah I, i'm thinking i might get something i've got a big i think a terabyte hard drive sitting around somewhere like a usb hard drive so i might end up taking this um uh, this new laptop and hooking it up to the tv and using it as a uh, media center oh that's not a bad and idea then i can grab it and ship it across the world or you know bring it into the recording studio or whatever if yeah, need be I like that anyway so yeah so we're gonna we're gonna have that for tomorrow because i mean obviously this is all going to be on one show for people listening but uh right right now we're recording on sunday morning before the big spacex announcement the bfr announcement so that'll be like in just a couple of minutes <laughs> um but that'll be recorded at a different time and so that's that's why i'm going and getting uh, a computer at a big box store instead of shopping online, which is what I'd rather do. Getting a, a PC, I was a Mac person for maybe a good decade, and I still have my MacBook, but it really opens up options for gaming. So, <laughs> I mean, I don't know what kind of specs you're anticipating getting on yours, uh, but even just a you know a, a laptop running Windows, you can just get so many more games on Steam pretty much. And so <laughs> that was always yeah. a big thing for me, the big draw. Well, I, you know, this is a computer that I'm buying for the, for the show. Mm-hmm. If, if I wasn't, I would just, you know, spend a little extra money and get a desktop and then be able to actually game on it. But, you know, I lose all of the benefits of having a laptop, a spare laptop that I could, you know, mm-hmm. potentially ship to somebody or, you know, take on site somewhere that I wouldn't want to take my MacBook. So right, I right. have to stick with a laptop, but yeah, it would be really nice to have a gaming computer. I'll I'll do that in the next couple of years sometime. 
after I pay off my student loans. <laughs> yep. Okay, I guess uh, this would be a good point now to just go ahead and move on to this week in spaceflight history because we have to cover, well, we have a long list of winners. And the audio clue should have been a dead giveaway, and somehow I didn't pick up on it, but a lot of other people did. So what is our list of winners? Well, so first, our, our audio clue was a clip from a This American Life story, um, mm-hmm. which uh, Valentin pointed out aired within the last year, and that's where I screwed up. <laughs> It wasn't wasn't far enough in the past, so I'll uh, I'll have a link to that in the show notes. Uh, it's a really really good episode. Our winners this week are Ross Peterson, Christopher on Twitter, James Maxey, Valentin Frank, Jay Adink, Chris Hoffman, Pat O, uh, who goes by Space Pat, which I really like on Twitter, uh, James Mulner, Chubby Turkosi, Ben Howler, and Stephen Sawyer. Jeez Louise. Rock. Oh, that's a lot of winners. You know what this yeah. means? This is good evidence that a lot of people listen to This American Life. <laughs> yeah. Right. As they should. Uh, all right. So this week in spaceflight history is September 18th through the 19th, because this happened pretty close to midnight. Uh, September 18th through 19th, 1980. And it was the Damascus missile disaster. So, uh, missile complex 374-7. So that's probably 374-7 is probably how they pronounce that. Is in the middle of nowhere, Arkansas. It's about 50 miles north of Little Rock. And this missile complex had some ICBM, some interne- uh, intercontinental ballistic missiles that are ready to go kill people, right? These are not ICBMs that are being built or that are in storage. These are in launch silos that are ready to go. And I don't know what variety of of missiles they have there, or at least that they had there in 1980, Um, but one of them was a Titan II with a 9 megaton uh, nuclear warhead. It was a W-53 warhead. So, of course, you know, ICBMs not only need to be in their launch silos ready to go, but they're also not much use if you have to wait to fill them with propellants. So, of course, you know, ICBMs usually use hypergolic fuels because they're, you know, relatively easy to store for long periods of time, uh, at least when you compare them to other uh, rocket fuels and oxidizers. So in this case, uh, the Titan II was filled up with Aerozine 50, which is a 50-50 mix, I think, by mass. I don't think it really matters that much, but it's a 50-50 mix of hydrazine and UDMH. Um, and then its oxidizer is nitrogen tetroxide, a pretty standard mix. So they sent some technicians into the silo to actually walk up and touch the rocket. Uh, they needed to check the oxidizer levels. It's kind of this routine maintenance thing that they do. And to do that, they have to basically turn a single bolt, which drives a valve, um, which lets them uh, check the oxidizer level. So I don't think that this is pressure levels. I think I think they open basically a hatch, not a hatch, uh, like a little uh, a little fill valve, uh, and they were able to like stick a dipstick in. I think that's I think that's what they were doing, rather than. Uh, turning a valve to expose a, a pressure sensor to the to the oxidizer tank. Anyway, so they go to, to open this little port, and they realize that they had left their torque wrench in the truck because they had to drive out to the silo with their tools. 
And of course, you know, a torque wrench is a really nice piece of kit that only allows you to put a certain amount of torque on a bolt. And from what I understand, this is actually a fairly new addition to their maintenance cycle. Um, they had been using uh, a socket wrench previously, and uh, so they, they just added this in. So anyway, they, they had the socket wrench ready to go, and that's where the, the clip comes from. It's It was talking about how big the socket wrench is like a three foot socket wrench with a gigantic um the socket adapter on the on the nose that you actually interface with the bolt with is just a huge piece of steel so apparently either it doesn't have a ball detent like most socket wrenches or the ball detent was a little loose or they didn't put it on all the way or something because they go to uh, put this wrench on the bolt and the socket comes off and goes tumbling down. And the This American Life story, they do a really good dramatic telling of the story where, you know, it kind of goes skidding off across the platform they're standing on and then slips between the platform and the rocket. There's this, you know, small little crack. Anyway, so it falls about 80 feet uh, straight down the side of the rocket until the, I believe the rocket flares out at one point. And so it smacks into that flare down near the end of the rocket, the bottom of the rocket. It bounced off, but apparently it tore a hole that was big enough uh, to start uh, letting fuel leak out. And so it not only leaks out, but it turns into a big cloud of toxic gas um, because both UDMH and hydrazine are both, you know, super terrifying, don't breathe this kind of chemicals. And the technicians panicked. Uh, they did not report what happened. They instead told the told the control room that they uh, were seeing smoke and there was some sort of fire. So they get out of the way. Um, but the control room now has to fight this uh, this non-existent fire. They you know they basically have to figure out what the heck is going on with bad information. And so snafu led to snafu. At, you know as they're as they're not able to properly address what's going on. And uh, over the course of the night, they ended up sending people in, pulling people out, breaking into doors, trying to figure out what's going on. And they weren't able to stabilize the situation, I guess is the right word. And the first stage ended up exploding. And it exploded in spectacular fashion, uh, blowing the second stage off of it. Um, and the second stage actually launched out the top of the silo and uh, went flying into the air a couple hundred feet and landed pretty near the silo and then the second stage exploded because it also had fuel in it and of course you know we're uh we always think about nuclear warheads as being super delicate things but in, in reality it takes quite a lot of force to actually set off a nuclear warhead right well yeah it does take a lot of force but it's a very complex process and so it's not as though if yeah. you, you know like hit it with a hammer right. it'll accidentally go off uh, that's just not yeah. how it works yeah yeah it's not a conventional like pressure triggered explosive yeah it's it's a complex Machine. So anyway, um, the um, nuclear warhead did not explode, which is not super surprising. But what is super surprising is that there was no radioactive leakage because this thing was built very well. And even though it was, you know, flung into the air, uh, it contained its payload uh, very nicely. So anyway, um, you know, it's it's not to say that no harm was done. Uh, people died. People who were working hard to try to save for you know for all they knew if this rocket went off it could you know have destroyed half the state or whatever so you know very very brave people going in trying to save many many other people um and unfortunately they died in the explosion but you know so all that to say it's, it's not like we you know this went off without a hitch and and everybody was fine but uh good engineering prevailed over bad emergency response i guess 
or inappropriate uh, emergency response. And there you go. That's the uh, that's the Damascus missile disaster. Yeah, I was going to say, good thing they, you know, engineered that right. I mean, 50 miles from Little Rock, that is mm-hmm. really close. Well, I think anywhere in the United States is, well, just like anywhere, period, that, yeah, that's very close because it's a nuclear warhead. <laughs> that's terrifying yeah yeah you can get away with it in the southwest but not in the southeast yeah there are places out in the southwest i mean that's obviously where they test them so Mm -hmm. or that or just go out in the middle of the ocean all right cool so what is our clue for next week all right so the clue is next week in 1945 some nudibranches can steal nidocytes from jellyfish this is actually really really cool so some nudibranches like uh sea slugs can actually go eat jellyfish and so while they're eating the jellyfish, the nidocytes, the, the stinging cells, will actually um, fire off their little harpoons and sting the mouth of the nudibranch. But the nudibranch is immune to the venom, so it doesn't really care. But what, what it's really after, because, you know, jellyfish flesh is not that nutritious, what it's really after are the nidocytes that haven't matured to the point where they can actually fire off. And what, what they do is they actually digest those nidocytes, and their digestive tract actually extends up into the spines on their back, those like antennae-looking jelly-y kind of spines on their back. And so as the nidocytes are going through their digestive system, they actually get passed up into these branches and get installed in the skin there and are taken care of until they mature. And then the nudibranch itself can use them as stingers, even though it didn't actually produce them. Right. I, yeah, I've seen a documentary on this, and it's it's very fascinating how you can actually mm-hmm. trade these little stingers, which I guess are called yeah. can I, So it's spelled with a C, but it's pronounced nidocyte. That's how I remember it being pronounced. Let's see. Yeah, yeah. Biology, it's got a lot of those different kind of phylum branches where there's a lot of CN for whatever, you know, Greek or Latin it came from. and. Yeah, the sea silent. Okay. It's, it's all great to me. So, yeah, the clue is next week in 1945, some new to branches can steal night of sights from jellyfish. All right. And what that has to do with spaceflight, I have no clue this time. I really don't know. Well, I figured I can't have 30 million people guessing it this week. Right. <laughs> yeah, I'm clueless on this one, too. Uh, well, if anyone out there thinks that they know what this is all about, then give us a tweet with the hashtag ThisWeekSF and good luck. And the big news this week is uh, the big announcement. Yeah, I guess it doesn't even need any introduction. So we now know who that mystery passenger is on BFR, and we know a little bit more about, well, I guess not really BFR, right? The BFS, to be technical here. And yeah, so where do we begin? Well, we can we can talk about the, the basic, the numbers that we got. So the whole stack is uh, 118 meters tall. And I type millimeters, and I'm pretty sure that's a typo. It can put over 100 tons of payload into LEO in fully reusable mode. The actual BFS, the ship itself, is uh, 55 meters in length, including the fins. So that sounds like the rear fins definitely stick out beyond the uh, rocket bells. And the interior has over uh, a thousand cubic meters. Uh, the pressurized uh, cabin is over a thousand cubic meters. For reference, the International Space Station is uh, roughly 930 cubic meters. Of course, that goes up with visiting vehicles. And then uh, 
the aft cargo bay. There's unpressurized cargo down by the uh, by the rocket engines, uh, and that's 88 cubic meters, assuming that you don't attach uh, any vacuum variant uh, Raptors. But we can we can talk about that later. Uh, yeah, there was some speculation that that ring structure was some kind of like a nozzle extension, which yeah. which I was pretty sure couldn't be the case because I was thinking to right. myself, I mean, I don't know details about rocket science here because after all, we were just like armchair rocket scientists, mm-hmm. but that just didn't make any sense. Like you would have huge amounts of turbulence or, you know, instability. Yeah, it would just have to be so huge to be able to work, right? Right. And extendable engine nozzles have never been super, super practical. And it feels like they're really trying to make this thing a real world object, which means that practical is the way to go. Yeah, definitely more mundane, fitting more cargo back there. Right, right, right. <laughs> now, can you speculate as to why they would put it there? Because uh, that is an interesting spot to put it right along the perimeter of the engines. Yeah, well, I, I think it makes a lot of sense. Uh, if you're going to land on those legs and then take the cargo out of the rocket, that seems like the best place to put it because they were they were um, showing uh, photos last time around of you know a giant crane sticking out of the side, mm-hmm. lowering down big boxes of cargo, which just seemed kind of silly. Yeah, no, I guess, I mean, airplanes, right? They have their cargo and their undercarriage, and so this is the undercarriage of the BFR, I guess so. Oh, yeah, and uh, Delta Via 4.3 in the chat points out that it might also help to lower the COG. I don't think it's going to change it that much, but yeah, sure, it can't hurt, right? Anything below the uh, soon-to-be-empty uh, fuel tanks has got to be a good thing. If you're talking about during atmospheric reentry, right, the center of gravity would just shift further back, and but the center of pressure would continue to go forward. I mean, that's not a good thing. I guess it depends on how it comes back in. It does, you know, reenter as he showed like at a pretty high angle of attack, so I guess it wouldn't make too much of a difference since that's how it's designed. No, the, sen- the center of pressure isn't going to change, right? Because that depends on the shape of the exterior. So it's the the center of gravity that'll fall farther and farther upwards, right? It'll it'll go farther up. Well, no, the center of pressure mm-hmm. does change because if you change, uh, you know, the weight distribution, it's pretty much like trying to balance the thing all like on a stream of air. And if you imagine the fuel tanks emptying, then it's going to fall to one side. Like if you imagine trying to like hold it on the tip of your finger, the center of pressure and the center of gravity can both move away from each other, which is a common problem. They can kind of shift around. Oh, okay. Okay. Sarfite has got a, a good definition here. Uh, center of mass changes with time. Center of lift changes with the geometry. Center of pressure changes with load. Okay. So you're right. I was... I was putting uh, center of lift and center of pressure in the same place, but that's that's not true. They are different. Okay, thank you. Good definition, yeah. Delta V. Yeah, so we now know that we have three big fins, and mm-hmm. one of them is just as a landing leg, and that's not for vertical stabilization, which is kind of what I was thinking, but you know, that was the first thing that he pointed out is that it's not what you're thinking it is. It's just for landing the ship because you have to have a third leg. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was a very interesting little fact because – you know, you would think that something so big might serve as a control surface, but it's not. That is what the other two fins are for. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's what happens when you don't fly the thing like a plane, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Your assumptions about planes go out the window. That's a good point. Um, and speaking of the fins, it's it's interesting that the two bottom fins are actually fins that flap up and down, right? They don't tilt back and forth like the tailplane of a conventional airplane. They flap back and forth, so they're more akin to body fins uh, like the shuttle had. Um, a b- the body flap in the back. So in the animation that they had, the the wings actually flapped forward and backward to um, change the roll of the spacecraft. And I, I suspect because they're so far back, they also change the yaw as well. 
um, which is interesting. Yeah. Sarfai oh. says that they're variable dihedral, <laughs> which right, right, right. Yeah. I, I don't think anybody would in their right mind would actually call it a variable dihedral, but that's a really great, <laughs> a great way to describe it. Yeah. So we got a cool pick or a cool video of the Raptor engine firing. And I don't know if I've seen one of those before. Was this the first time for anyone or was it just me? Yeah. I felt like I had seen it before, but I could totally be wrong. Yeah. But it looked good. And he gave us a specific number of 380 uh, seconds for the specific impulse, which was cool because I don't no, I mean, I've heard, you know, a lot of guesses that were right around there, but he said it. And I think that was the first time it came out of Elon's mouth that that is a specific impulse. Um, and they provide 200 tons of thrust. So another cool number there. So, yeah, we're kind of getting a good idea of, you know, how this engine works. And he really stressed just how much work went into it and how it was hard for them to figure out, you know, the right questions to ask. And I'm wondering what those questions were exactly. I think he was talking about the overall design of BFR, don't you? It seems like he was talking more about the engine specifically, but I don't know because he just didn't specify. Yeah, my, my imp- yeah, he was very vague. My impression was that he was talking more about the configuration of the entire spacecraft because i think that was like right after he talked about or or right before uh, how he talked about how at one point they actually had six appendages on the rear three landing legs two body flaps and then something else and they ended up condensing them all into just three uh three legs that that was kind of my impression because i feel like the the questions that you have to ask about raptor are a little more simple which is how big and how powerful (laughs) Hmm. can you make it um but yeah elon really f- seemed off tonight i mean he he's never you know been a great orator, but boy he really he was really all over the place today definitely had a tough time at the beginning for sure he did do a good five minute speech where he said the same stuff that he always says yeah and i right. was like hmm. really we're gonna hear this again it's almost like he has to do it it's almost like when you read someone their rights you have to say it so he has to give the whole <laughs> he has to do the miranda spacex speech <laughs> that's what it's going to be called from now on yeah so one photo that we saw was uh, apparently some of the actual BFS completed or built. Well, not, I mean, not completed. That's the wrong choice of words. But I guess what, like the frame, that part is pretty well into construction. And you had said that you saw, because I did not see this and I didn't want to go back because I was watching it live. But then someone said that they saw some tooling or something. And- yeah. So so they sh- first they showed some, t- I'm pretty sure it was some tooling. It looked like it was in the tent where they were storing it previously. Um, in one of their parking lots. Um, and it's basically giant tooling for this actually looked like female tooling. Um, what we saw in the big tent, I believe was a mandrel. And this looked like it definitely looked like it was too heavy to actually be flight hardware. Um, it had like I beams in it. Mm-hmm. Um, but it had, it looked like the inside was the interesting part. And it looked like it had, um, interfaces or something. Maybe, um, yeah, I don't, I don't know exactly what, what was going on, but it looked like, uh, female tooling to build cylinder sections inside of it. Then they swapped to, uh, a photo of an actual cylinder section. And it sounded like they had at least one, or obviously they have at least one because they showed it. Uh, but maybe they have more is kind of, what it sounded like maybe they had built more than one um, but what they haven't built yet is the cargo section or either of the domes i think there's probably going to be three domes uh one on top one on bottom and then a common bulkhead in the middle i think i don't know what the current the current design is but they he said that they're hoping to build domes in the cargo section soon which is pretty cool you had mentioned that the one big redesign here that Elon likes is also that uh, it has better aesthetics. And 
and now you no longer have separate landing legs. And, and then you also don't have the delta wing, right? Now you have that forward, I don't know what you would call that. Some call it like a canard, but I don't know if that's the term that he used. I mean, they, they really look like canards. Yeah. It does look better, I have to say. And it's t- totally an old school rocket. But during descent, I kept thinking to myself, it looks like a giant squid head because of those four planes, you know, those <laughs> those little canards. I mean, it, to me, it looks just like a squid head. It really does. And yeah. I was like, that's an interesting look. So I, I think they should name at least one of those ships the Kraken, you know, because that's always a good name. Oh, that's nice. And then you don't have to say lift off. You can say release the Kraken because that's what you got to do. <laughs> yeah. And they could paint some big eyes on it. I mean, okay, I'm getting out of hand here. But um, it does look like a squid head. So, you know, while we're talking about... Uh, building the first one uh it's interesting that uh elon said that they're spending less than five percent of the company's efforts actually developing bfr and I i thought what he said next was really important he said that crew dragon is their first priority right now and i think that's the way it should be right um, oh yeah mm-hmm. and uh somebody in the chat i forget who it was uh was kind of like oh well it's not gonna happen but I would be a little worried if they were really spending a bunch of time on BFR when they're coming up on their first crew flight. Um, I feel like that's probably what they, they need to focus on. Also, it makes me feel good that they're focusing on satellite launches because that's their bread and butter and that's where they're going to be making money. You know, we all have this timeline in our heads, you know, getting to Mars by what, uh, 2025. But like, we have all the time in the world to actually get to Mars. I think seeing the company focus on what they're doing now is is really good uh it's it's them actually playing things maybe not conservatively but playing things the way that an actual company that makes money (laughs) plays things yeah apparently the buying underpants strategy is not working so i think they're being a little bit more pragmatic about it you know like yeah they have to make money in order to fund this thing um good point and then the other thing that was said right right after that was um Somebody asked, how much does it cost to develop this? Previously, I think we had heard the $10 million or $10 billion figure. And right now he's, uh, Elon saying $5 billion total. And then he kind of quibbled and he said, well, more than $2 billion and probably less than $10 billion. $5 billion for something of this scale is, is pretty, pretty amazing. I think they're going to overshoot mm-hmm. that figure. Uh, but we'll see. Yeah, for sure. That's pretty much a given, I think. So. Yeah, that that two billion. The way he said it, that struck me as sometimes when I kind of want to hedge myself and give a nice big fat interval, and I'll yeah. go low, even though there's no way it's <laughs> be well more than that. But I guess I guess at least we're within an order of magnitude, which is kind of the, right, the best right. you can hope for at this point. Right. And so I guess uh, also speaking of development, somebody asked, okay, well we've seen two versions before this. And Elon said, okay, well, this is the last broad architectural iteration. We're, this is what it looks like. You know, there are going to be some things that change, but this is the, the basic uh, body plan. It will be squid-like to some degree. Definitely. Yeah. <laughs> I actually wonder how true that is. I mean, he says that. But then again, just remember that first presentation where he said, you know, this is an actual rendering and this is, you know, the actual flight profile, blah, blah, blah. I mean, he had it all laid out and he said that this is pretty close to what it's going to look like. But now it's not because then he shrunk the thing now it looks you know very different so is that true do you really think this is the final big change or are there going to be more well i mean i don't even think this is that big of a change i think the the big change was reducing the size i feel like 
after that, you know, we still have three landing legs. You know, we still have X number of sea level rockets and, you know, maybe some uh, vacuum optimized rockets. Like, I feel like everything's pretty much the same. The size was the big deal. Yeah, I mean, the the front end looks, aside from those canards or whatever, it looks pretty similar. I was going to say, I think it's just the big thing is just exactly what do you mean by kind of how many broad architectural changes would mm-hmm. be made and just exactly how broad is broad. And so I can't imagine it's going to look like what we're seeing here when it actually does its flight, but it'll be recognizable, I'd imagine. Um, so we have a cool note from the chat. Uh, Zarified scrubbed back and looked at the uh, at the point in the video where we saw the um, that first photo that I thought was tooling. Um, he suggested it might actually be experimental hardware, um, and the things that are kind of poking up from the inside are compression plates. So I guess it might be reasonable to think of this as um, for like load testing, which is interesting. And that, that seems to make sense. Mm. Okay. So I think one of the really cool things, um, not only do they have cargo on the bottom near the engines, um, but they also can swap out vacuum engines. So it's, two cargo racks per vacuum engine, uh, which is really interesting. So by increasing, what did he say? By increasing the number of vacuum engines, you get more cargo, but I guess that means less unpressurized cargo, obviously. Right. Um, right. So you can pack more on the inside. That, that seems to make sense. Um, also, uh, Tim Dodd, the everyday astronaut came through with a really great question. What kind of engines are these? What are they optimized for? And yeah, they definitely look like sea level engines and Elon confirmed that they are sea level engines, that they're flying the same thing on the booster as on the rock or on the, uh, this, the spacecraft. And that's really good for, uh, simplicity, but that also means that they're going to take a pretty huge, uh, performance penalty. But, you know, if you want to land this thing, you got to have them. So it's interesting that they're starting by not even including, uh, the vacuum engines and just cutting their losses and, and ex- or I guess accepting their losses. And get more of this pragmatism. Yeah. Just, yeah. just get it up there. <laughs> well, because in this case, they don't need those vacuum optimized nozzles for this particular upcoming flight, right? So yeah, not for why, yeah. But now if you did have the extended nozzle, because I'm not recalling the exact dimensions now, but that wouldn't be touching the ground, I assume. You know what I mean? Like with those fins. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Presumably you don't want to crinkle them. Yeah. It'd be a design um, flaw. <laughs> well, I mean, it depends on what you're doing. You know, the uh, lunar, the LEM did crinkle its its extended bell, but you don't care. Once once it's touched the moon, it literally doesn't matter. So they also talked about uh, a launching, uh, the launching and land site. Um, sounds like it's probably going to be, or they're definitely doing uh, grasshopper, you know, short hops in Boca Chica, but they haven't made a call on whether they're going to fly out of Boca Chica or the Cape. I don't know. I, I kind of feel like I'm going to be surprised if they decide to fly out of the Cape because that's a lot of extra transport. But I thought that the manufacturing was going to be in Florida for BFR because they're not going to... Oh, mean, is it? The, yeah, it's just too big to transport. So they're going to have to build them pretty much wherever they launch them. Right. I thought that they were... I thought that's why they were building them in Boca Chica. Well, I mean, it might be. But yeah, if they are building them there, then that's exactly where they're going to launch them from because they can't transport Well, them. and I guess we're also talking about production versus this first vehicle because the first vehicle is obviously right. already being built in California. 
So, uh, yeah, I guess we're going to have to wait and see what, where production actually takes off. With the diameter of 9 meters, how are they getting that to presumably a port? Because they're not going to be transporting it by road. I mean, it's got to be by boat, right? Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, that's such a great question. Who knows? And so one other thing that he said was that they might actually be launching from a platform out in the ocean, which... Yeah, that's not going to happen. Mm-hmm. Well, okay, yeah. So you're <laughs> immediately convinced... It. You're convinced it's not going to happen. I'm still wondering why would they want to do that i think the benefits are are kind of the same as they've always been you know if you launch at sea you don't have to worry about people you don't have to worry about you know all these things that come with flying near airports and and homes and that kind of thing but boy the downsides are really huge aren't they yeah there are huge downsides and so yeah i mean i don't think that's going to happen either uh yeah, that just doesn't seem reasonable to me. Gee, but can, I mean, uh, sorry, I'm going to step back for a second. Can you imagine seeing BFR float through the Panama Canal? That's what they're going to have to do if they're building it in L.A. Oh, man, it's so weird. Okay, yeah. sorry. <laughs> okay, let's see. They talked to, uh, Elon talked about their landing profile, how they can actually adjust the max G load experience on the way in uh, by reducing payload. And they could do 3Gs on descents. That wouldn't be unreasonable. That's that's a thing they could do. But they're probably going to be doing more like 5Gs with normal payloads uh, or payload masses. So I don't know why they would particularly want to get, you know, 3G, uh, a 3G descent that I guess I guess maybe for keeping the keeping the artists or you know the passengers happy is probably I mean it's probably the only reason that could be there. Yeah, exactly. I mean that is the only reason that I can think of because it's certainly not the most fuel efficient way of doing it. Oh, well, it's it's not about fuel efficiency, right? It's I mean, assuming that this isn't some sort of a suicide like whatever it's called, a suicide burn. A suicide burn. Yeah, I don't think that that's where most of the Gs are going to come from. I think most of the Gs are going to be coming from the deceleration through the atmosphere. He said that they fall for quite a while and that it's just within the last like whatever the last minute or two that they, you know, yeah. turn on those engines and it's got to be coming right. in pretty fast so you're going to be it wasn't even a minute or two they did the the last part of that video was in real time and it was it was real slow so so i don't know what the terminal velocity of this thing is yeah it it was around uh point mach 0.3 so let's see if if mach is what 700 right yeah 200 something miles per hour yeah it seemed like that was the you know, you you reduce payload that gets you lower G's when you're mm-hmm. screaming through the atmosphere, not lower G's when you're actually burning the engines. Because if anything, higher payloads would reduce your your actual uh, suicide burn G's, right? I just keep thinking of the fuel margins because if you have a higher payload, then you obviously can't be like burning for as long. So you might want to go for something more. Oh, uh, like you're a doing the yeah the. Uh, the hot and heavy burn. Yeah, that's yeah. a good point too. So the actual moon mission, uh, they said that the uh, the exact mission profile hasn't been decided. What a shock! I mean, they probably don't even know what kind of g loads they can expect, uh, or you know, uh, what kind of acceleration they can expect um, out of the entire system. So that's that's not terribly surprising. But Elon described a flyby that seemed really bizarre. He said he wanted to skim really close on the way in, get as low altitude as possible, then go around the moon and then uh, arc up high and then come home. And so uh, he showed a very asymmetric or he, he showed a very symmetric profile just as a demo. And he said, oh, what, what I actually want to fly is very asymmetric. And uh, 
I gotta say, I don't think that's possible. <laughs> okay, so exactly why do you not think that's possible? I mean, you're probably right, but if well, if you're doing a free trajectory return, which we're not sure they're gonna do, but if you're doing a free trajectory return, you are flying around the moon with no extra burns. Right. Um, and so what that looks like is just a straight parabola coming into the moon's sphere of influence, if that's actually a thing, hitting perilune, you know, at the bottom, which isn't necessarily the far side of the moon when you're looking at it from Earth. It'll actually be canted to the side, but it'll still be, it's not going to be exactly on the far side of the moon, but it will be on the far side of the moon generally. Mm-hmm. And then coming back up. What he was describing was Paraloon before they before they get to the backside of the moon. So to do uh, a trajectory like that, um, that's going to wind up um, with you leaving the moon's sphere of influence, uh, basically traveling away from the Earth, which means that you're going to end up uh, arcing up very, very high over the Earth, going way beyond the moon's orbit, you know, orbital altitude. Um, and then spending a ton of time loitering up at Apoapsis and then coming down screaming fast as you have a bunch of potential energy that gets burned off as you uh, as you come back down to the Earth. So he made it sound like they were going to do kind of this magic, just shifting the um, the parabola to the left, basically. Mm-hmm. But you can't really do that. You have to rotate the the whole thing, which ends up changing the angle that you're coming in at and the angle that you leave at. Well, I guess he wasn't specific enough to to really give us an idea of what he's talking about. Yeah, I was just basically going to just echo what you said. It's been a while since I've looked at mechanics, but I had that exact same sort of image in my head where the apoapsis should be on the uh, the far side, roughly. And so to shift like that, they would have to burn again to be able to go and, you know, get the far side of the parabola back aimed towards the Earth. You right, couldn't right, do that right. on a free return. And, you know, nobody's saying that they have to do a free return. It sounds like they're not going to go into lunar orbit. But, yeah, I mean, you can do a lunar uh, a a lunar flyby <laughs> and power your way around the moon. That's that's totally possible. And who knows, with, with only six people, which means only six people's worth of luggage, only six people's worth of oxygen and water, like that, that may be, you know, doable to just power through it. Assuming that the paraloon is where it should be for a free return, how close would that be? Because it seemed like he was making it sound like he wanted to get even closer still. And I don't know, because I don't know the orbital mechanics here, you know, how close can you get? He just put this image in my head of like, you know, like skimming the surface. And I was thinking, well, that's going to definitely mean that you can't do a free return trajectory. Right. But like maybe if it's not as close as he's saying, because I have in my head, you know, the images of astronauts coming in for a landing. Of course, they were landing on the lunar surface but while in orbit it looked like they were kind of close but i really don't know it's very hard to tell well and that's that's all artist impression too, right believe, yeah so yeah okay so i guess i guess we need to talk about who's going so dennis you had a guess on who it was and you were off a little bit huh i was i mean i got the most boring part of it which was knowing that it was a <laughs> japanese national but <laughs> i was thinking it was gonna be uh daisuke Yanomoto, who is the guy that wants to go up there in a gundam but nope it was uh evidently a fashion billionaire yusaku maizawa i was totally caught off guard about what he did though i was this announcement i thought was a lot turned out to be a lot cooler than i you know was anticipating that he went and purchased all of the seats available <laughs> when they showed that slide i was like oh my god and so, um, I, you know, when, when he did that, I was really, 
afraid that he was going to start saying, and all of you are invited. And it was going to be like an Oprah moment. I, I had a Charlie in the Chocolate Factory moment too, right around then. So I didn't think though it was going to be what he ended up doing. <laughs> so like, are you saying that you thought that he was going to say that like, you know, you, you've each been handed a bar of SpaceX chocolate. <laughs> Check and see if there's a golden ticket. <laughs> Look under your seats. Well, Ben, you, you had said that most likely there will be more than one person going and you were right, but I didn't think it would happen like this because pretty much he's the one who's paying for it. Right. Is that kind of how this is yeah. like working? Yep. And then he's just, inviting no, that's definitely, they said that, that the, uh, the people who go along with him won't have to pay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's very interesting. And so he wants to bring artists, huh? And that was a huge surprise to me. I think it's brilliant for such a seminal thing. And it's going to be so inspirational to go and visit the moon up close. And so who do you bring? You bring basically the most inspirational people, you know, artists Mm -hmm. and in all different fields too. I really like that too, that because he was really getting into when he he showed Basquiat, I was like, wait, isn't he dead? Like I actually had to. (laughs) Basquiat's dead, right? Yeah. Yeah. And so, uh, but yeah, he wants, you know, film directors, uh, you know, musicians, you know, paint artists, sculptors, whatever. He had a whole little list of, uh. A crew we want to get up there and uh, i love that his selection was fa- pretty much famous ones that i like <laughs> well, right? that's it's not like right. <laughs> that's some meritocracy yeah. or something yeah well how do you judge merit when it comes to art that's a little bit hard to do no that's yeah absolutely so i mean obviously he's going to be bringing home a lot of art and i wonder how much of his money he's going to make back uh, selling that art. That's uh, a good point. I mean, space flown art is pretty impressive, but space created art is is really up there. I guess there's a reason he's a billionaire. So yeah, you think that, that he's going to have several artists just doing paintings while flying by the moon, like that kind of thing? And photography and videos. Are you kidding me? Yeah, of course. Okay, well, yeah, I can see the photography and the videos and all that, but I was just thinking like painting, like how easy is that going to be to do in zero g oh it's not going to be easy but it'll happen i guarantee i mean it it may you know i might be overly cynical saying that you know he's going to sell it but i mean that's there's no way that that's not going to happen who would you vote for if you could pick one person to go like who would you like to send into space oh me i really respect my art well besides you okay you can't pick yourself (laughs) because i thought about it and i was like i'm not sure i mean there are a lot of artists that i very much admire but i'm like I keep thinking, well, is this someone who could actually go into space? Like my first thought was like, would I want to send Tom York from Radiohead? Because I love Radiohead, but I don't know. (laughs) I don't think he'd survive the trip back, to be honest. He's a wiry little guy. Yeah, my first instinct was uh, like, I I would think Guillermo del Toro would be able to come up with some really cool stuff. But I'm like, I don't think he... I don't think he would handle it too well. They have to be in good physical shape, and yeah. a lot of artists aren't. Are you kidding me? Guillermo would, would drop weight like a stone if he had to. That's true. <laughs> That's don't you think he would love yeah. to go to the moon? Yeah. Yeah, I, yeah totally. Actually, now I'm, I'm um, a lot more optimistic. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I want to see people in the space community. Like, I want to see Tim Dodd go as a photographer. Uh, or I no, I want to see Tim Dodd go as the film director. I want to see like Trevor Malman go as a photographer, you know, like the, these people who are, you know, small little people who make big impacts on our community and are, you know, earning fame for themselves like that. That's what I want to see. But I know that's not going to happen. Yeah, that's something that we want. But uh, I think it might right. actually be more useful for the general public if you sent someone that the, you know, the general public knows about just as a public relations type of a thing. 
I think going to the moon or, you know, like going around the moon is pretty cool just by itself. So it kind of doesn't matter who you are. You're going to be famous after that, I think. But just imagine if they if they send up like Lady Gaga. Just, I mean, people go nuts. There is a huge amount of PR involved. And so it's probably going to be people that most people are aware of. You know, it's, it's going to be famous artists and famous fashion designers, famous filmmakers, whatever. Um, in fact, I'm wondering now if... Uh, uh, James Cameron will be among them because I wouldn't be surprised. Uh, I bet yeah. he's vying for that seat. You know he wants to. Oh, yeah, for sure. And maybe even, well, he's not an artist, but uh, the other guy that you had mentioned, uh, the other Japanese guy, because, I mean... Oh, uh, Hideo Kojima? Yeah, because he wanted to go and he trained for this and then it, you know, fell through. And so he's got to be probably a little bit upset that he got beat to it. Yeah, because he missed the opportunity. Well, he didn't miss the opportunity, but I guess he couldn't fund it the way that this guy can. Yeah, I mean, buying all the seats, that's just wild. Yeah. Although, of course, right, exactly how much it costs was a really big theme, you know, not disclosing the amount. A lot of the uh, interviewers are trying to be coy, asking questions about, well, can you give me a percentage? Maybe, but nah, Elon was uh, tight-lipped about that, as was uh, Yusaku. I bet you they had a very nice, tidy sit-down from legal before they went up. Yeah. Although I did like that he at least disclosed that he actually did put up the money. Like, they asked, you know, have you put yeah. down a down payment or anything along those lines? And he was like, yes. And Musk said, said that it was substantial, right? Like, he said that it's a pretty good chunk. So, I mean, mm. whatever that is. So... One other thing that he kept on emphasizing that maybe a little bit too much is that he kept saying how dangerous this mission is. Now, why was that? I mean, granted, space travel is pretty dangerous, but he made it sound like, I don't know. I mean, it just seemed a little bit unreasonable because they are going to do many tests before they send these people up. So why that dangerous? What is it that he's getting at? I got the sense that he was just kind of like, you know, when you're giving a talk in the front of a room and you're kind of improv yeah. and you end up going into a little too much detail about something that yeah. you kind of are like, eh, maybe I shouldn't have really emphasize this too much and so that's what i picked up i was like Oof. Yeah. yeah well it sounded very much like when he was talking about the first falcon 9 first stage landing he's like uh we're, we're talking less than 50 50 like mm -hmm. just don't get your hopes up like, i kind of felt like that like it, you know this isn't we're not perfect. Yeah, so you're saying that he's maybe trying to hedge SpaceX's reputation maybe a little bit, but I don't know if you should do it when you're talking about people's lives. I mean, it's like... <laughs> I think it's just being realistic. Even even space, or even NASA, you know, when we've flown, you know, however many hundreds of... Well, not hundreds, but we've flown so many people up into space. Every time they're still like, yeah, this is dangerous. I fully acknowledge that it is dangerous, but I think you mentioned it like three or four separate times. Yeah. You know, <laughs> it's mm -hmm. like, okay, we get yeah. it. Now no one's going to want to go. Although I'm sure people will, but no one too famous. Okay, time to do some short and sweet. And what is our first one, Dennis? So Japanese startup PD Aerospace announced that they intend to launch a new space plane by 2023 that will carry passengers to suborbital altitude. This craft is designed with an innovative engine that can switch from an air-breathing mode like a typical jet to a rocket-powered mode. Inspired by Spaceship One, they'll fly using the jet mode to 15 kilometers, then toggle over to rocket mode until 50 kilometers before coasting to the Kármán line and giving their passengers five minutes of weightlessness. They hope to keep costs down by having a reusable, all-in-one spacecraft that can launch from airport runways. That is insane. Good luck to them, though. Yeah, totally. Next up, Orion Parachute Test is a success. In Yuma, Arizona, NASA successfully tested the Orion Parachute System for flight with astronauts. There were eight tests in total, some of which tested for various failure scenarios and other off-nominal conditions. The Orion Parachute System has 
11 parachutes as well as mortars and pyrotechnic bolt cutters. In nominal conditions, the system will deploy at a speed of 300 miles per hour and slow the Orion capsule down to just 20 miles per hour for a splashdown in the Pacific Ocean. So I guess they're all done with that testing. So there's your Orion news. And what's our last one? Delta II has launched for the last time. On September 15th, the rocket whose heritage dates back to the beginning of the space age made its final flight. Its payload was the ISAT-2 Earth Observation Satellite. This final mission was Delta II's 100th consecutive successful mission out of a total of 155 launches. There is one last remaining Delta II, but instead of launching it, ULA will be donating it to the KSC Visitor Complex. So if you've never seen this rocket up close, you will always have the opportunity to do so. All right, and let's move on to upcoming spaceflight events. We got two launches, one spacewalk. Uh, first launch is on September 19th. It's the launch of a Long March 3B slash YZ-1, and that is launching uh, Beidou 3M13 and Beidou 3M14. Satellites for the Beidou constellation, Chinese GPS. And that is launching on September 19th at 14.05 UTC from an unknown launch site, but that is in uh, the Xichang Satellite Launch Center. So, yeah, be sure to check that out if you can, but you really can't. So, I guess don't bother. Yeah. And on September 25th, we've got an Ariane 5 ECA, which will be launching an Azure Space 2 slash IntelSat 38 satellite, which is a geostationary telecom satellite, and a Horizons 3E, which is another geostationary comm satellite. And this will be on the 25th at 2156 UTC uh, from the Ariane Launch Area 3 in Koro. And then after that, we don't have a launch, but we have a U.S. spacewalk uh, preview briefing that's on September 21st at 2 p.m. Eastern Time. Uh, on NASA TV, and then they no longer list the actual spacewalk. So I think it might have got delayed. So uh, the briefing may also be delayed. Alrighty, so those are your upcoming spaceflight events. With that, time to sign off. So let's go ahead and do over the show. And we'd like to thank Ronald Jenkins and Tim Dodd for our music. We record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. Thank you to our $5 and up Patreon supporters for joining our recording sessions and helping us make correction burns on the fly. If you want to support the show too, please leave us a review wherever you listen or visit theorbitalmechanics.com slash support for Patreon, affiliate links, and other resources. For more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com. Be sure to check out our store for mission patches, t-shirts, and hoodies. You can talk about the show with other listeners on Twitter and Reddit. We're Orbital Podcasts on both, and you can talk directly to us by emailing info at theorbitalmechanics.com. So that's it, and we will see you next week on Orbit. Until then, later. Goodbye, everybody. See you.